You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening your practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to routinely cover the uh, basics. Um, We've been talking about the Manual of Insight, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text um, by the Vipassana Meta Foundation. And we're, we're just beginning the chapter on the development of mindfulness, which is, uh, comes after the chapter on absolute and uh, relative uh, realities. <clears throat> um, I sometimes wonder um, when going into the kind of uh, detail that they typically describe in these um, manuals and these um, millennia old, old super refined systems for describing reality in, in, in such uh, subtlety whether it's actually useful for most people to have an awareness of this or not um, we talked about the five kinds of phenomenon um, eye sensitivity form base eye consciousness mental contact and uh, feelings, feeling tones. Um, And I like to describe that as you have the capacity to sense something, so we have our our five senses and thinking. Uh, You have the object that can be sensed. When they make contact, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which awareness knows, and the sensing experience itself has a quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral to it. Uh, and to me, that's a sufficient level of detail. If you uh, remember earlier uh, in the discussion, the recommendation for mindfulness meditation or insight practice, vipassana practice, is to focus on an object that's easy and obvious to focus on. And also, if you recall, that your, your mind is really capable of knowing only one thing at a time. So that if we, we talk about five kinds of phenomena and you wanted to explore them, you would only be able to explore a single aspect at, at one time, not all five at the same time. You can infer from exploring any one of, one of the aspects that the other aspects have to be present, but you won't be able to have a direct experience of them. Um, and so... Um, if we move further into this chapter, we have the four aspects of phenomena, um, the five kinds of aspect and the four, the five kinds of phenomena, and then a further uh, um, uh, refinement is then the, the four aspects of phenomena, and these would be, uh, some may wonder whether it's possible to experience phenomena accurately without an education in theory. Is it possible if we mindfully observe mental and physical phenomena the moment we see it, the moment they occur, 
Ultimately, real phenomena are made up of nothing but the particular aspects of their characteristics, their function, their manifestation, and their proximate cause. Have you heard this level of discussion before? So if we directly experience an ultimately real phenomena, we understand it in terms of one of these four factors. In other words, we can experience an ultimately real phenomena in terms of these factors. If we perceive an object in any other way, the object we perceive is not genuine, ultimate, real phenomena, but a concept of something such as manner, identity, image, solid form, and so on. We can experience a phenomena as it really is if we observe it the moment it takes place. This type of experience is neither imagination or reasoning, but uh, awareness of a phenomena in terms of its characteristics and so on. If we observe a lightning bolt the moment it strikes, for example, we will certainly be aware of its unique characteristic, brightness, its function to remove darkness, its manifestation, whether it's straight, branched, or arching, or its approximate cause, uh, a cloud, and so on. It is possible, on the other hand, it is impossible, on the other hand, to perceive the lightning bolts as if it really is if we imagine or analyze it after it's disappeared. Likewise, if we observe phenomena the moment they occur, we can understand the characteristics and such of these truly arising mental and physical phenomena as they really are, even without any theoretical knowledge of them. So in some sense, we've, we were just bouncing back and forth between what is ultimate experience and what is conceptual reality. And in this description here, in the moment that the lightning bolt is cracking, I really kind of like this image because I grew up in the Midwest, in Tornado Alley. <laughs> the thunder, thunder and lightning storms were epic. Um, the, the house I... Uh, grew up in, the chimney was blown off multiple times by lightning bolts. Um, in that moment of sensing, right, you see the, the brightness of it. You see the form of it. Uh, when we talk about then the function of it, then to me this is, moves us into the again, the conceptual reality, what is the actual function of it, or the proximate cause of it. Um, we need to eventually investigate the, the proximate cause when we get into the progress of insight, because it's about conditionality. The approximate cause is often the moment before. It sets up the conditions that allow this moment to happen. So the proximate cause of this moment was the last moment, that without the last moment being the way it is, we would not have this moment the way that it is. There is the ultimate reality of just the sensing experience, and then there's the thing that we make the sensing experience into, this process that we're looking to examine. Is that making sense? That once you reflect on the previous moment, that you're in conceptual reality, you're not in the experiencing of it. Is that making sense? That's really just what this discussion is. Can you just be in the sensing of it without the need to make it into anything? 
just be another way to be would describe that as the flow of it. Can you just be in the flow of experience without needing to fixate it into anything, without it becoming a conceptual reality, but just be in the reality of that sensing moment. The approximate cause of an object is distinct from the observed object itself, so during the early stages of meditation you should not pay attention to it. Um, <clears throat> the proximate cause is not mentioned because it is a separate phenomena. In the case of meditation on the four fundamental elements, for example, when one observes any of the four primary material elements, it is not necessary to pay attention to the remaining elements as they are the proximate causes. Otherwise, one would be observing an object different than what is the one one is intending to note. So if the proximate cause is not happening in the present moment, since it happened in the moment before that led to it, then you can only examine that in a conceptual way, not in the ultimate way of the present moment. And so it isn't something to uh, reflect on. Insight practice, though, is often a coming and going from the ultimate reality to explore the insight. So in the meditation practice, you're focusing on experiencing the ultimate reality, and then uh, if you want to explore in an insight way, in a, in a conceptual way, the thing that's happening, then you would step out of the meditation, step out of the ultimate experience and into the conceptual insight to explore the insight through a, a process really which is contemplation. And then once you're satisfied with the exploration of the insight, you return back to the meditation technique of, sense, of paying attention to the sensing experience. In the beginning of meditation practice, uh, these uh, insights tend to arise spontaneously from the wisdom mind. And uh, I don't, for, depending on where you are in your practice, maybe you noticed in the beginning of practice one insight after another that seemed really interesting and seemed something that was worth stepping out of the actual technique into an exploration of it through contemplation. But as, the, as your practice deepens, uh, uh, less and less of these uh, early insights will remain of interest and so you'll simply let them go and stay in the sensing experience itself. If you're, depending on how you're organizing your practice, is it a practice organized around examining your conditioning so that it can, that you can function better in relationships, so a kind of relational exploration? This is something that uh, householders, I think, would do more than monastics. Householders need to be able to function well in the world, and so exploring the nature of how conditioning, uh, your automatic condition responses affect your ability to work and be in the relationships that support you is a different aspect than, say, uh, uh, severing ties to the outside world, joining a monastery, and, and going simply toward uh, liberation in the classical sense. Um, last uh, winter when I was in Myanmar, um, the, the Sadao said, the first thing that you need to do as a monastic is se sever all ties with anyone who is not a monastic. Everyone, family, everyone. 
that's the first thing that you need to do if you want to pursue the, the path of a monastic. Um, and uh, Myanmar is one of the countries where you can take temporary ordination so that if you wanted to try monastic life, you could do it there without the, the usual penalty in, in Asia that, uh, that is assigned to people that uh, uh, disrobe. In, in most of the other countries in that area, particularly in the Theravada lineage, once you take uh, the vows, once you become a monastic, there is no stepping out of it, even if it isn't something that works for you. You are ostracized in society if you do that, and unemployable, really, even if you do that. Because you had the chance in this incarnation to dedicate your life to the Buddha and if you don't see the value of it the whole society turns away from you. Except in Myanmar where they have the, the possibility of temporary ordination where you can come in and, uh, and not make that commitment. But if you're a Mirama and you're in the country uh, and oh, the, you want the resources of the monastery to be available to you, then you're committing for a lifetime in your earlier mid-teens. So, so different from our culture. Do you know anyone in our culture who could make a lifetime commitment to their mid-teens? <laughs> or that anybody would even ask them to do that? <clears throat> we don't regard teenagers as developed enough to be able to make that decision. The army, yes, well, we do do that. I think that the the uh, age for the army should be 21. That's what I think. Um, I think we would go to fewer wars. And I think there should be a universal draft for some civil occupation that all children need to be uh, engaged in that. I think we'd also go to fewer wars if the children of the resourced uh, thought that they would risk their children in, in a, an activity like war. They simply wouldn't allow it. Um, so, in terms of the practice then, oh, I want to then talk about something else here. Um, why are both characteristic and function mentioned here? Um, in case of the four primary uh, material elements, because they are intended for meditators of different dispositions. When meditating on a primary material element, one person may experience it in terms of its characteristics or another person in terms of its function. Um, so a person can only realize one of the four aspects of characteristic function manifestation and pro proximate cause at a time. When a person is noting a mental or physical phenomenon at any given moment, only one of these four aspects is obvious. So he or she can only observe one of them at a time. Since two, three, or four aspects are not obvious at the same time, a person cannot be aware of all of them. Fortunately, it is not necessary to be aware of an object from all four aspects at the same time in order to accomplish one's aim. It is indeed understanding an object from a single aspect serves a purpose. So, 
there's a lot of ways to begin to explore insight practice and what we're looking for is a way that actually feels agreeable, that it has interest, that engages us in the practice. So that if the characteristic of the brightness of the lightning bolt was the thing that was the most interesting, then you would be totally fine to be able to explore that element in itself. Um, if uh, what did they say? Um, the function is to remove darkness. Uh, this isn't intuitive to me. I wouldn't think of a, a, a lightning. A bolt to remove darkness, I would think more of it to discharge electricity in the atmosphere. That's where that aspect uh, comes in. Its manifestation, whether it's straight or branched and its proximate cause, what, a, what way of practicing actually appeals to you and has an engagement so that you're actually practicing? That's, I think, one of the other aspects of this that's useful to understand. So um, I have been a student of Shinzen Young's for years because I like the way that he formulates meditation techniques. It's easy for me to practice that way. Uh, and, um, and I've sat with many teachers and he's the one that remains the most engaging for me in terms of style of practice or the way that he describes it. But um, that's me and you all have your own uh, conditioning to address in terms of how to practice. And so part of this is an investigation of who to sit with and how they describe the practice and how they describe what to look for. I don't uh, you know, completely agree with, with Shinzen's teachings. He would uh, say that I think uh, this is fair, <laughs> that he hates Dharma maps. Uh, I love Dharma maps. <laughs> um, he thinks that... Uh, there should be a single way to teach meditation that appeals to everyone. And I'm much more in line with this idea that uh, we, we each have our own conditioning and different aspects of phenomena are going to be more appealing to each of us depending on that conditioning and so that we should uh, be free to practice in a way that, that's useful to us. Um, the... Uh, and he makes a point, I think, that is valid with this. He says that if you use a Dharma map and you explore the techniques that are described in the Dharma map, then you're likely to have the experiences that are uh, tend to arise from doing those practices. That seems to make sense. And so you should also understand that if you practice in a certain way, uh, that practice has a tendency to lead to a predictable insight path and that we shouldn't confuse that as universal for everyone. Um, Shinzen has practiced in the uh, Vajrayana, the Japanese Vajrayana. He's practiced in Theravada and he's practiced in Zen. And so he tends to like to sort of mash up different maps uh, depending on how he thinks the practice goes. Um, and I, I like that because it, it, it gives me a, a range of uh, uh, things that I can explore to see what's appealing. And the reason that I like to teach the Mahasi Progress of Insight, or the 16 Stages, which is this very traditional Theravada map, is because it's, it uh, mapped out the experience that I had in my practice before I knew the map. 
so that at, just in the, the process of practicing my insight path unfolded in the way that this, this path uh, describes. So there was very little transliteration. It was pretty much a description of what happened for me and I found it very useful that way. So, uh, and as we go through this the book, I am going to definitely be talking about the 16 stages uh, of insight, um, talking about Mahasi's uh, description or his commentary on that, which is called The Progress of Insight, and taking you through the meditations that are described in each of the different stages. So in the first stage is Nama Rupa, which is meant to be an exploration of the ultimate experience of sensing um, body-mind. So exploring each of the six sensing experiences in that way. The second uh, is conditionality. So then we're into the approximate cause of things, conditionality. The conditions of the previous moment set up the conditions for this moment. This moment then sets up the conditions for the next moment. And there's this continuous flow of experience each present moment based on the experience of the previous moment. and you, So in the exploration of that, you're actually focusing on that flow of experience. Because there's a natural order to it, that this moment sets up the conditions for the next moment, and when you're in the next moment, you know that the previous moment has done that, you're in this mo- this introduction to arising and passing, that all experience arises and passes, nothing lasts, no sensing experience lasts. And then you move into an exploration of the three characteristics, the sense of self or no self. If you simply watch the phenomena flow without making any attempt to control it, you have an insight into the nature of no self. Nobody is doing this. It's simply the process of being. Um, Impermanence, nothing lasts. Wherever you turn your attention, if you pay attention to the arising and passing of it, you can see that everything arises and passes. Nothing stays the same. I think we all know that on some deep level, but it also can be quite unnerving that nothing will last. That means we won't last, that none of the relationships will last, nothing will last. And then that puts you into the, the, the place of examining the, the nature of the human condition. And each of these stages unfolds into the next. So the basis then of, say, describing a technique like see, her feel, where you're just simply attempting to be present for the sensing experience and not do anything else except touch into what the sensing experience is in this process of pulling it apart vipassana uh, vi means to divide pasana means to see so you see by dividing Um, we have visual experience auditory experience and a felt sense in the body and and when they come together in a combination uh, they form the, the sense of solidness of our experience the sense of realness of our experience But if we don't know how we allowed them to come together, we don't know how accurate the representation is. And uh, maybe some of you have had the insight into how radically distorted the mind is capable of forming things. 
And so we just move into this place of pulling apart the various sensing activities. We know from uh, recent developments, developments in neuroscience that the present moment as we experience it consciously is not actually the present moment. That the present moment as we experience it runs a half a second behind what's actually happening. Another way to say that is that the body-mind, the processing speed of the body-mind is about a half a second. So we are all experiencing everything as if it's happening in the present moment even though it's happened a half second. So that it isn't, um, it, there isn't a contradiction in that in the sense that it's when we become aware of it consciously that we can know it. So we're noting that even though technically speaking the thing has already happened. Um, and to know it in some sense in this way is to have a sense of self that knows it. So there's that capacity to investigate that. That when there's no self to know it, then actually we're probably operating more in the present moment just from the immediacy of when it's happening without the delay. The experience of the forming of self that then knows that this is happening to the self maybe the thing that takes all that processing. Um, um, so, but let's do a double noting strategy on it. I'll explain it. So we have the capacity to sense, so um, we have the object that can be sensed, when they meet, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. But the sensing experience itself, which is the Vedna or feeling tone aspect of it, can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. <clears throat> so the first note is going to be for sensory clarity. Is it visual experience, auditory experience, or a felt sense of the body? And then we're going to examine what is the quality of the sensing experience where our attention has been drawn. And that's going to be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Most of the time, the sensing experience in visual thinking or in uh, external sight is pretty neutral. Most of the time, the hearing experience, whether it's internal auditory experience or outside sound, is pretty neutral. It, the light would have to be really bright or the sound harsh in some way for us to have an unpleasant quality of the sensing experience. So just to be clear about the Vedana aspect, it isn't whether you want it or not, whether you like it or not. It's the actual quality of the physical sensation of sensing it. Is that making, is that clear? So um, the temperature in here is, is pretty nice. So maybe the, the pleasant, there's a pleasant quality to the sensing of temperature if your um, attention is drawn there. The body tends to be a richer place for pleasant sensation. Maybe there's a smell that wafts through that you, you enjoy smelling. The sensing of it though is different than the enjoyment of, of smelling it. So just those two things. <laughs>
been a while since I've done that. So when we did the labeling, I started removing what is pleasant, what isn't pleasant. So that's also a form of just conditioning. Mm -hmm. So totally. So then backing it out into just everything being kind of just neutrality, you don't see that any sort of emotional states that arise or even conditioned feelings that arise, like worry, you know where it happens in the body, it starts to dissipate and then just go away. But it's almost like rebooting emotion, right? And then that's, that helps is a, Kind of being aware of removing the conditioning that you're seeing. If you if you just remove it down to the sense states, right? Hearing, seeing, everything, and then you just remove the feeling states that arise. Mm. It gets very uh, comfortable. Yeah, it's harder to do the sen the the feeling tone aspect than the craving. Of, aversion and consciousness aspect that follows that. Because mm -hmm. some, uh, some of the responses to the sensation are really conditioned. So, right. Cool. Yeah, super cool. Um, but then, uh, then I noticed that's where the, uh, going down that intellectual track is like the track that I must understand. And then you'll see where he's kind of bringing that so when you start getting tired or you start seeing the uh, wanting to say, no, 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 this is what you are right now. Mm -hmm. You know, because what you were saying before, you know how we're a half second behind, right? If you get to the state of, it's almost as if we're so deeply far behind in our <laughs> condition. It's trying to get all the way back to, again, like a state of almost first birth. The moment of birth, the moment where there is a sense of self, but then not a sense of conditioning mm -hmm. of this, whatever this has become. So, it's pretty cool. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's really got to want it. It's effort. It takes effort. <clears throat> you really have to want to let I found um, that I wasn't good at letting go, but I was good at watching it be ripped away over and over, and in seeing that process of not being able to hold on, um, uh, the freedom came. I can't hold on to it anyway. Right, right. So, so it's almost the inevitable. Yeah, but well, you. Hold on, and then it's ripped away. Hold on, it's ripped away. Hold on, it's ripped away. You finally get it. You can't hold on to it. Right. It goes. Um, and that all of that clinging, all of that gripping, is futile anyway. And that's that was the way that I got into that space of being able to let go. It's cool. You're forced with knowledge. 
Right. And then you don't try because you, you're convinced. <laughs> I guess any way towards trusting the process, even if it's written. Yeah. Thank you for coming. This is Deepening Your Practice. I'm always advocating ways to deepen your, deepen your practice. One way is to go on retreat. I have some flyers out there for the uh, summer retreat that's coming up on July 3rd through the 9th at the Seven Circle uh, Retreat Center up near Sequoia National Park. So it should be beautiful. If you can come to that, come to that. It's a Metta Vipassana retreat, so the first three days will be Metta, the second three days will be Vipassana more or less. Um, I've also put a flyer out there for morning meditation. It's good to have a daily practice if you can organize it. If you can't organize it uh, or you find that you're not doing it, then morning meditation might be a good choice. It's a live conference call every morning at 7.30. You call up. I do a, a guided meditation for 25 minutes and then there's a Q&A at the end. It's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday is... Um, Inside and Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday is Metta. We're going to begin in a couple of weeks the first four stages of the progress of insight as a guided meditation every morning, which I like to do every summer. So consider that. <clears throat> I happen to be on the East Coast. I have a retreat starting um, on Friday out there. So um, The... Classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna here is $20. Um, but Donna is a, a personal practice of generosity, which you undertake for yourself. It's the thing that opens the heart into the ethical training that you undertake uh, when you take on the path. Um, so examine for yourself if you're well-resourced and $20 doesn't mean that much to you. Give it a level that does have a sense of generosity to it. If $20 is good, that's fine. Do that. If it's too much, and uh, then give it a level that you're comfortable giving at. But each time you come to a, one of these uh, 
mine or somebody else's, do consider contributing something to it. There's a bowl out there for cash, and I can take a card from you here. Uh, and if you've used a cushion, put it back on the stack, and that's really all that has to be done. Thank you so much. So I'll be